well, or they were, you know, uh, an aunt or an uncle or someone that you, you know, maybe you'd catch up with uh, during Christmas time, whatever it might be. If you happen to go to this funeral with your eyes open, have you noticed that you could, you could learn quite a lot about that person? Have you noticed that? Maybe, uh, you know, you discovered something about this deceased individual that you had no idea about. Perhaps they started up some successful company that still exists today, or they had interactions with a particular politician, or maybe they accomplished some athletic feat, or, or what have you, and you go, when that's brought up during the eulogy, you go, I had no idea. I wish they would have told me. I would have, I would have that's actually quite interesting. I would have loved to hear more about that person, but they're, they're gone now. Over the past few months, we have witnessed the life of a man. We've seen him go from being a farm boy one day to a king the next. I suppose one could make the case that Saul is one of the greatest figures of human history. Just consider his ancestry. Abraham founded a nation. Moses set that nation free. Joshua gave them a foothold in the promised land. Yet shortly after this, that same nation nearly disintegrated into chaos with the judges just barely holding things together. But that's when Saul came. That's when Saul came along. He took these unruly people and welded them into a nation. You understand? He took these unruly people and stitched them into a united kingdom. Think about it. Saul solidified God's people and founded a kingdom. Few men have ever done that. And let's not forget, he forged an army out of thin air. He won battles in the power of God. He had the spirit rush upon him. If we're honest, he's the type of leader that many churches are looking for today. Good-looking, persuasive, empowered by the Spirit, able to do the seemingly impossible for God, chosen by the people, anointed by the Lord. Who was Saul? What kind of man was he? Deliverer of Israel? Yeah. Anointed of God? Absolutely. The nation's first monarch? No doubt. Eaten with jealousy? Filled with self-importance? Willing to live in spiritual darkness? Well, unfortunately, yeah. 
perhaps a fitting tombstone for him would read something like, here lies King Saul, half hero, half villain. I say all that because 1 Samuel ends in a graveyard. Saul is buried under a tree. This is a story of death and judgment. But it doesn't have to be a depressing story. It should be a sobering one, which ends up being an encouragement in the end. Well, how so? How is it going to be encouraging? Because it seems like it just, it ends. Well, allow me to give you a tool. Allow me to give you a tool, a helpful tool in order to process today's passage. Uh, you might have learned this way back in high school, or perhaps you learned this if you went to university in your first year at uni, and you learned this in your English class, and you think, oh, I'll never use this. But let me, let me give you a helpful tool, okay? You ready for it? Now, when we read a piece of literature, there's a way to distinguish between a tragedy and a comedy. You with me? How do we differentiate these two pieces of literature? A tragedy begins in prosperity and descends into tragedy. Is that right, Dan and Sky? Okay. I've got two English majors here, so, you know, I'm shaking, and they're looking at me. So a tragedy begins in prosperity and descends into tragedy, whereas a comedy begins in prosperity, descends into tragedy, but makes a U-turn back into prosperity. So in chapter 31, why do I say all that? You still with me? The two different pieces? You have tragedy, you have comedy. In chapter 31, what do we have? It's a tragedy, right? However, we turn to 2 Samuel, and we'll see that this tragedy actually sets us up for a U-turn, for a reversal, which occurs through David's dynasty. And ultimately... This U-turn, massive, ready? I'm going to go U-turn all the way past 2 Samuel, all the way, ready, to Christ himself through David's lineage. Big picture stuff there, okay? But let's bring it back to our two chapters. How, where, what, can you, what can you hang your hat on this morning? There's your sort of 50,000 feet. But where do we hang our hat when we just look at today's passage? Let me give you two hooks of which to hang your hat on, okay? First hook is this. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. That's chapter 31. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Second, those who oppose the Lord will experience tragedy. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 1. So those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Those 
who oppose the Lord will ultimately experience tragedy. There'll be tragic results that'll happen for those who oppose the Lord in this life and in the life to come. So there's your big picture. There's your two hooks as we look at these very heavy, sobering, just, yeah, passages that really, they're just, I really pray the Lord shapes you and, and, and you're able to walk out of here with a greater sense of God's character and his kindness to his people and the bigger pictures of, of all this stuff, okay? So as we wrap up, one of the, my favorite books of the Old Testament, and it's been a sure blessing to, to go through it with you guys. So uh, we won't go into 2 Samuel. We'll be coming up in Advent and we'll have some good stuff there, but maybe one day. Maybe one day we'll go to 2 Samuel. We'll see. So um, let's, let's actually pray and then we'll, we'll dive into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us this morning. Lord, we are so fortunate and yet we don't even see it. We, we are just, we live this life as, as if it's normal to receive half the things, most of the things that we do from you, and, and we, don't even, we don't even acknowledge that. Lord, we pray that as your word is opened and taught, that truly it would not return to you void but would accomplish its purpose. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In case you don't think I haven't been dramatic, here it comes. Ready? Even as he gazed, his quick ears caught sound of the woodlands before. On the west side of the river, he stiffened. There were cries, and among them, to his horror, he could distinguish the harsh voices of orcs. Then suddenly, with a deep-throated call, a great horn blew, and the blast of it smote the hills and echoed in the hollows, rising in a mighty shout above the roaring of the falls. The horn of Boromir, he cried. He's in need. He sprang down the steps and away, leaping down the path. Alas! An ill fate is on me this day, and all that I do goes amiss. Where is Sam? As he ran, the cries came louder, but fainter now. And desperately, the horn was blowing. Fierce and shrill rose the yells of the orcs, and suddenly the horn call ceased. Aragon raced down the last slope, but before he could reach the hill's foot, the sounds died away. And as he turned to the left and ran towards them, they retreated, until at last he could hear them no more, drawing his bright sword and crying, Elendil, Elendil, he crashed through the trees, a mile, maybe, from Parthgalin, in a little glade not far from the lake, he found Boromir. He was sitting with his back to a great tree, as if he was resting. But Aragorn saw that he was pierced with many black-feathered arrows. His sword was still in his hand, but it was broken near the hilt. His horn cloven in two was at his side. Many orcs lay slain, piled all about him and at his feet. 
Aragon knelt beside him. Boromir opened his eyes and strove to speak. At last, words came. I tried to take the ring from Frodo, he said. I'm sorry. I have paid. His glance strayed to his fallen enemies. Twenty at least lie there. They have gone, the halflings. The orcs have taken them. I think they are not dead. Orcs bound them. He paused and his eyes closed wearily. After a moment, he spoke again. Farewell, Aragorn. Now, I read that because whenever I think of Saul, he reminds me of Boromir. He's a guy that's technically on the good side, but through his own lust for the ring and power, he's lost his mind and in the end dies a really sad death outside of the fellowship, so to speak, alone. It's a tragedy. And Saul's life is cast in that shadow of tragedy. So as we look at the chapter here in 1 Samuel 31, it really breaks into two parts. First, we have the battle. That's in the first seven verses. And then we witness the aftermath. So first, the battle. And then in verses 18 through 13, 8 through 13, the aftermath. Do you notice how if, if you were reading when um, Ralph was, if you're following along when Ralph, Ralph was reading, do you notice we, we just were sort of brought to the very end of the battle? Do you remember how it left off? Saul, which of Endure, he has his meal, and then all of a sudden it goes, and now over to David. You remember that? And then that was last week, and we learned about David and Ziklag and the Amalekites. And then all of a sudden, it just goes, now back to Saul. And, and the battle, it's not like, and as they lined up, and it's like, it's just, they're, they're already on the back foot. Did you see that? They're just, I mean, look at it right here. The way it starts off, it, it just says, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell. Do you see that? It doesn't say that they're lining up. It doesn't give you the description like you don't hear the drums beating and the battle about to happen. Boom, they're already on the back foot, right? Saul and his men are, are running. The Philistines are quickly closing in on them in the valley of Jezreel. So Israel tries to gain the high ground by going up Mount Gilboa. At this stage, Saul and his sons are separated from the main fighting force as they're trying to get away from the Philistine chariots. Unfortunately, they're not out of range, though, from the archers. And as predicted, one by one, did you see it there? The men of Israel, do you see that word fell? Meaning they were killed. That verb fell keeps resurfacing throughout this chapter. Now, sadly, the first to fall of Saul's sons is a guy that we love, a guy that's one of the heroes in the book. Come, come here to verse 2, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Jonathan is the first reported casualty on Mount Gilboa. We've seen this guy before, haven't we? He was David's best mate. He was a warrior. He was a godly and a faithful man, even fighting alongside his less than honorable dad to the very end. Ralph Davis puts it this way. He said, here then is Jonathan's obituary. He remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. 
He surrendered his kingship to David. He sacrificed his life for Saul. In this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place the Lord had assigned to him, at the side of his father. Maybe that is not a tragic at all. What is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has assigned us? What is tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? That day, Jonathan closed his eyes on the battlefield and opened them in glory. And now that he and his brothers lay strewn about, well, Saul's defenseless. They've been now separated from the rest of the army. He's virtually alone, allowing the Philistines to move in for the kill. And as the fighting becomes heavy around Saul, eventually the archers find their mark. And he's pierced with arrows. Look at verse 3. Notice how the king, it's described as mortally wounded. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Again, that's, this is why I read that scene because, you know, Bormer was struck with arrows as well. And, and if you've seen the movie, that, that was actually, it's funny because the movie, they make, this is actually the, uh, the two towers, but in the movie, it's the Fellowship of the Ring. But in the Fellowship of the Ring, when they put that in the movie, it, it's, it's this really sad scene because, yeah, Boromir's a rat bag, but he's still part of the fellowship, right? And, and, and the ring has consumed him, and so he's by himself, and he's blowing the horn for help. And just as he's fighting, and he's a, he's a bad dude, like he's fighting all these guys, that one arrow, that first arrow when it comes, you can just hear it, boom, and you see it, it just sinks into his chest. And at that moment, you can see it on his face. He knows it's game over, right? And, and, and he doesn't, but here's the irony though. Boromir, and I actually, I love this, that, that you don't catch this in the book, but in the movie, you know, he has this chip on his shoulder against Aragon in the whole movie, right? You know, we, my, my people, we don't need a king. We don't need a guy like you. And then as he's dying, Aragon, he, he grabs him. He goes, you know, holds him just like we saw there in the book. And he, he just said, I, you know, I, I, I will not let the white city fall, not for our people, right? And then Boromir says, oh, our people. He said, I would have followed you to the end, my brother, my captain, my king. Now, I love that, and that's a good repentance, as it were, even though he's on his deathbed repentance of Boromir. That's not what we see from Saul, <laughs> What do we see from Saul? Here's a guy who's still giving commands when death is on his mind. His greatest concern is his own image. Look at verse 4. Look, look what he tells his armor bearer. Look what he says. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell, there's that word, fell upon it. Now it's true in this time period that it was common for captured kings to be mutilated and tortured in gruesome ways. And no doubt he's afraid of this probability. At the same time, 
Can you hear what he's saying to his armor bearer? Look, they're going to catch me. I don't know what they'll do to me, but I don't want them doing anything that will mess me up or make my body look bad. So just run me through. How dreadful, and yet how fitting. Death is facing this man, and the thing that's on his mind is his image. But it's always been about his image. He's always been worried about what people think of him. In his last moments, he's more concerned about how he'll look dead than he is about the God he is about to face. It's kind of like the line from Nick Romano, live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. Since Saul is determined to die on his own terms, he has no alternative but to plunge himself onto his own sword. And then, in an act of solidarity, his armor-bearer followed his example and took his own life in verse 5. Notice verse 5. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell, see there's that word again, fell upon his sword and died with him. Now, I think this is written in such a way, it, the author of Samuel didn't need to write it. We, like, if, fall, if Saul's been pierced with arrows and then he falls upon his sword, he gone, as they, as they say in the South. He gone, right? But in verse 6, I think this is written in such a way to really make us pause. Thus, look at the, look at the word there, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. The man who was introduced as the one who would deliver God's people from the hand of the Philistines sadly meets his end by dying at the hand of the Philistines. But this was precisely what Samuel predicted. You remember what the Lord, remember this? Remember, remember in Samuel's life, the Lord let none of the words of Samuel fall to the ground. Do you remember that? When Samuel was young, he was coming up as an upcoming prophet. The Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And here we have Israel. They fall on Mount Gilboa. Saul falls on his sword, but the word of the Lord will not fall. It will surely come to pass. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. You reap what you sow. The government's not going to bail you out. You cheat on your wife, your marriage will likely disintegrate and your kids will not, will, can't stand you. And you've sinned greatly. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. You, you start lying to your family and start lying to your boss, it's going to create a ripple effect across your entire life and you'll be caught and you'll be shown to be a liar. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. You value this world and your own pleasure and your leisure. Don't be surprised when your kids are a bunch of hedonists just like yourself. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. You reap what you sow. 
What a tragedy this is. But there's even, even, listen, there's an even deeper tragedy. And that's in the aftermath. That's in the aftermath here. And that is the dishonor of the Lord's name. In verse 8 and following, we see the brutality of the Philistine army. You know, the next day, the mopping crew comes, the mopping up crew takes, begins, and, and, and when they come upon Saul, they think, what a prize, the head of Saul. Look at verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his son, three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines. Notice this word here, to carry, really, the gospel, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. You know, you've seen, if you've watched war movies, you've seen these images, right? The victor, the, you know, they're moving across, the, the, the guys, the army that won, they move across the battlefield, and what are they doing? They're, they're picking up weapons or gold or jewelry or whatever you have you. And as the king and his sons are scattered across the hillside with his men, their uniforms are removed, their weapons are taken away, and they're stripped down in the ignominy of it all. And do you notice how they broadcasted this news throughout Philistia. They spread the good news everywhere. What's that good news saying? Yahweh is dead. God is a loser. You understand? I, I, this is probably hard for 21st century people, particularly in a, in a secular society, understand when there's this compartmentalizing of sort of there's church and there's state and, and you have these, these breaking of these two. Those two were completely welded together. God's king is the savior, Messiah, Mishiach. He is the anointed one. So, so what, what's the message here? Your God is lame and can save nobody. Pathetic. Our God's reign. Your God is a loser. This is the gospel of the Philistines. This is the gospel today, by the way, for people who reject Christ. Idolatry has won. Look at verse 10. Look what they do. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the well sorry, to the wall of Bet-Shean. Now, this brings us back to, think about what's going on here. They, they take his armor, and wh where do they take it into? To the temple, right? Think back to all of Samuel. Think back to the Dagon incident. You remember that, when the ark was captured? Back in chapter 5, they brought the ark into Dagon's temple, and Dan preached on this, but what happens? The idol falls, smashes to bits, right? And now the Philistines say, yeah, you may have been able to topple our Dagon, but we have toppled your king. And we have put his head in here, 
to testify to the fact that we and our gods have won. You see, this is not about the defeat of Saul. This is about the enemies of Israel saying, we know how to run life. We know how to win. Our gods reign. You people are pathetic, and so is your God. I have actually been and seen Bet Chien, that's how you say it, myself. And when you enter Bet Chien, the ancient city, there's this circular mound up at the very top. I mean, wherever you go in Bet Chien, you can see up there's this hill. Not massive, but decent. I mean, everywhere you walk in the ancient city, you look and you can't, it's just, it's, the city's built around this mound. And so everywhere you see, you can see this mound. And I, I remember being there going, oh, that would send such a message because you couldn't help but like, oh, there's bodies hanging up on that wall of Bet-Shean. And then people, and then you can imagine, ooh, daddy, what is that? Oh, that is the people of Israel. And that's what happens when they oppose Dagon. That's what happens when they oppose Astaroth. They end up like that. That's their king and his sons. Naked head cut off, gross, mutilated body hanging there. That's Israel's savior, Messiah. That's their king. That's how weak they are. So that's the scene. And imagine if you're God's people. This seems like game over. Do you remember all the confidence they had in King Saul? Well, now he's gone, and rumor has it David has joined up forces with the Philistines. Looks like we're going to descend back into the book of Judges again, friends. There's no hope. There's a little friendly ray of light, though, that shines in this dark picture. Uh, we're told in verse 11, when the people of Jabesh-Gilead caught wind that Saul's corpse had been thrust under the wall. Notice what they do. And, and why Jabesh-Gilead? Well, look, come along here, verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, I love this. All of the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bet-Shean, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Where have we heard about Jabesh Gilead? Do you remember? This was the city Saul rescued in the very beginning of his career. It was 40 years since then. And arguably, this, is, this was the finest moment in Saul's reign. Now, four decades later, these folks of this town still remembered this and decided to return kindness for kindness. It's amazing that God concludes the memory of Saul's life with the one obedient act that he accomplished. But the story is not yet done. How will David respond to all of this? I mean, he is, after all, the anointed king in waiting, right? So in 2 Samuel, David and his men have returned from saving their family members who were taken captive by the Amalekites. Now, how will David respond? Well, oddly enough, 
Do you remember they were fighting against the Amalekites? And Amalekite comes and gives this news about Saul's death, which is pretty gutsy, considering they were just fighting against these guys. And so this Amalekite comes, and what does he do? Well, he gives him fake news, right? Puts his own spin on it. He's trying to curry favor with David, ingratiate himself to David. And he, he, he puts his own spin. He says, oh, look, uh, he tells some truth. Saul died, and, um, but you know, I'm the one that ran him through because he looked like I put him out of his misery. Um, and you know, um, I, I just thought I'd bring his, his jewelry to you, his armlet and his, his crown, because after all, I mean, you're the king, right? And he's expecting David to go, oh. Bless you, bless you. Obviously, the guy, this Amalekite, failed to get the memo how David feels about striking the Lord's anointed, <laughs> right? And, and he, what's interesting in the text there, too, is if you were reading when, when Ralph was reading, notice he, he, you just picture him, he goes, he presents all this stuff, and what does David do? Rather than take those, the jewels, he takes his own clothes and tears them and mourns. But while he is mourning, he turns to Amalekite and says, sorry, who gave you a license to kill the Lord's anointed? Uh, I, I just felt like you'd be happy with that. Get rid of this guy. Strike him dead. And they do. And then David gives this lament. He gives this powerful poem, lament, and the theme of it is, this expression, how the mighty have fallen. It, it demonstrates his commitment to honor God's Messiah and gives us insight into four tragic effects of opposing the Lord. So those who oppose the Lord, right? Yes, as I said, will, right? Ultimately, they'll cop it. But then those who oppose it will have effects here in this life. Those who oppose the Lord, those effects will re rebound on us. Because when Saul, again, as much as, remember, he's half hero, half villain, when he, when he dies this way, it brings dishonor upon God. That's the first thing that we'll see here. We're going to look at this, this lament. But it also brings tragedy upon those closest to him. I mean, what a horrible thing for his son, Jonathan, and his other two sons. That's really sat with me a lot this week, actually. Because I thought, you know, I'm not, this is in Old Testament times, we're not taking up arms and fighting. But if I'm spiritually a derelict, it, I'm, I'm actually, actually going to affect my kids by that. If I'm just selfish, and losing my temper because I didn't get what I wanted, my kids see that, and that affects them because I'm being a spiritual derelict to my kids. And it brings tragedy also. So it brings dishonor on God. When we oppose the Lord, it brings dishonor on the Lord. It brings tragedy upon those closest to us. It brings tragedy upon the wider community. Israel doesn't have a king. I mean, David's coming. But for right now, they're, they're looking completely 
directionless. And fourth, when you rebel against God, you hurt a lot more people than yourself. So let's look at it here. Verse 17, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshur. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How, here's this line, right? Three times you're going to see it. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Gath is one of the main Philistine cities. Remember that? There's five of them. Don't tell it in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Eskelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Let the, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. And the blood of the slain and the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. You know what's interesting here, and I want to get to Jonathan. Do you notice he flags Saul first? I mean, <laughs> what? And, but what what's causes him to do that? Because, I mean, like, if, sorry, if someone tried to kill me for, the, like, the next 10 years and I had to, like, go into hiding, I wouldn't be at their funeral being like, oh, how the mighty have... I'd be like, thank God. <laughs> Seriously, I'm, just, I'm not going to lie. Like, I just, maybe, you know, I should give you my... Um, let me give you the pastor answer. I would really... No, I would be like, you know what? Better someone else than me do it. Um... But yet David, what is David doing? He's looking beyond the character of Saul to, the, to God and his covenant people, right? And that's what shapes him. It's, it's not Saul himself. You know, I doubt, I doubt that he wanted to like go have a coffee with Saul. I'm sure there was still probably, I not, not, don't know how much he even liked the guy, but he refused to be consumed by hate like Saul was. He wanted to love his neighbor as himself. He was able to look past that individual. Make sense? And then even Jonathan, he got shortchanged because Jonathan was loyal to his dad. David got shortchanged from a good friendship that he could have had, and now his best mate is dead. So Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. So thankfully, this is not the end of the story. For us, though, we're going to take a break here. So it's going to kind of feel like, oh, Close your Bibles, and maybe someday we'll be back to, to Samuel. But in the meantime, here's the outcome. Here's the spoiler. David ends up on the throne. He makes some huge mistakes along the way, but he never rebels unrepentantly 
That's the key, like Saul. He sins for sure, but he's a man after God's own heart. God establishes an everlasting dynasty through him. See, this tragedy of chapter 31 sets us up for a comedy, a great U-turn, a reversal, which will happen through David's dynasty and ultimately happen through David's line culminating in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. You see, the king is dead. Long live the king. In closing, friend, what will your story be, I wonder? A tragedy or a comedy? The only way your story will be a comedy is if you make a U-turn. The Bible calls that U-turn repentance. It's a turn from sin to God. It's a turn from leaning on your own understanding to leaning on Christ. It's a turn from going your own way to following the way of Christ. You understand, dear friend, you will meet this king one day, and you will either meet him in wrath or you will meet him in grace. What will it be? The king is coming. This king is dead, but long live the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Long live the king. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you again and praise you for your kindness to us. We pray that the words that were true and spoken from you would lodge deep in our hearts. We pray that there'd be none in this room who refuse to bow the knee to the king. Lord, we pray that they would bow now and not later because we know, Lord, that Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we pray, we pray, God, that you'd grant them repentance now. Cause them to bow the knee to Jesus now. Lord, this is a great reminder that, Lord, there is nothing in us. There is no good track record. There is no good deed that we can point to other than pointing to Jesus. So we thank you that the, the wrath, your wrath is completely satisfied. Once your enemy, and now we're seated at your table. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.